Good Friday brought great despair into the lives of your followers. They thought all that they had given their lives to was basically for nothing. And yet, within a few days, the day that we're celebrating today, the first Sunday morning when you rose from the dead, everything changed. Their lives began to change in dramatic ways. That didn't always mean it was easy, but there was a new dynamic in their life as your spirit came and empowered and encouraged and strengthened them, Lord. And they realized that you had conquered man's greatest enemy, death itself. Father, because of that, we have hope that transcends this world and this life. We can come to uh, the end of our lives, not in fear, but in faith, not in despair, but in hope, Father. And I pray today as we hear your word, Lord, that you will speak powerfully into our innermost being. We'll hear your voice, and they'll not just be mere words, but your spirit will demonstrate these things in our lives we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1. I'm, you know, I was thinking about, you know, Easter Sunday and a number of years ago there was a cartoon and the pastor was standing at the front of the door and greeting people on their way out and this uh, person was walking out and he said to the minister, he said, You know, every time I come to church, you preach the same sermon. For you that didn't get that, it's because he only showed up on Easter Sunday and he kept hearing the same story over and over again. And so knowing that, I decided to do something a little different this morning, but I believe that it will speak into our lives. In September of A.D. 386, that's a long time ago, right? A native of North Africa who had been a professor for several years in Milan, Italy, sat weeping in the garden of his friend. He had been contemplating the wickedness of his life. See, he had grown up in a a home where his mother was a godly Christian, but as a young person he had been extremely rebellious and he had lived a very morally permissive life. He had just gone out and, you know, did his thing. He was currently living with a young woman, had fathered a child, had totally written off the faith of his mother. And yet, now at this stage in his life, there was a scholar and a godly man who was speaking into him. And while sitting in a garden, he heard a child's voice singing, take up and read, take up and read. And he opened the scroll that was the book of Romans next to him, and his eyes fell upon a text of scripture. It said this, this is Romans 13, in verse 13, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts or desires. Later he wrote of that occasion, no further would I read Nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there seemed to be a light, a serenity that infused my heart, and all the gloom of despair and doubt vanished. That man was a man by the name of Augustine. 
who upon reading that short passage from Romans received Christ as Lord and went on to become one of the church's most outstanding pastors and theologians. Now over a thousand years later. You know what? I love the Bible. It's a living book. Over a thousand years later, another man by the name of Martin Luther, who was a monk studying in the same cloister named after Augustine. It was an Augustinian monastery. He was a doctor of theology. He was teaching from the book of Romans. He was studying it at Wittenberg, Germany. And as he carefully studied the text, he became more and more convicted by Paul's central theme of justification, which means that a person now is in a right relationship with God. He wrote, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the book of Romans, and nothing stood in the way but one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took that to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the wicked. And so he was living with tremendous terror on the justice of Almighty God in dealing with sin. Night and day, he said, I pondered until I finally grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness through grace and sheer mercy which justifies or makes right the sinner before him strictly and solely by faith. There I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through the open doors into God's presence. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning, and where before the righteousness of God had filled me with terror, it now created within me an inexpressible sweetness of his divine love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway of heaven. Well, that's two great very famous Christians who were affected by this book called Romans. But that doesn't end there. Several centuries later, an ordained minister in the Church of England by the name of John Wesley was similarly confused regarding the meaning of the gospel. Listen, this is amazing. Here's a person who grew up in a pastor's home, went to Oxford, studied for ministry, studied theology, but was still confused as to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means good news. He wrote in his journal on Wednesday, May 24, 1738, I went to a society in Aldersgate, kind of a church, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of the book of Romans. So this is like the opening remarks regarding this letter. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt now I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me at that moment that Jesus had taken away my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley, with others, were very instrumental and and used by God to literally, as historians, not theologians, have written, saved England from the fate that France experienced under that anarchy and destruction where thousands were butchered. England, in in and a different response turned to God. Out of that came waves of people to Christ and eventually the origins of the Methodist Church. 
It was born in response to the Word of God as revealed through the book of Romans. Now we've listed Augustine, Luther, Wesley. How many know these are heavy hitters in the Christian historical calendar? All became followers of Christ as they heard a message from the book of Romans. How many get an idea? This may be a very powerful book. Very powerful book. So what brought about changes in their lives? In other words, what can bring about a compelling change in my life, in your life? Now I want us to turn today to this book. And I pray today, and I have been praying, that you and I will experience this great transforming power, the supernatural work of God's Spirit to change our lives. The theme of the book of Romans is actually the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what does the word mean? It just simply means good tidings or good news. It's good news. That's why we're singing with all of our hearts this morning. We're singing praises to God because of this good news of what Jesus Christ came to earth to do and accomplish on our behalf. Now, the author of the book of Romans is a man by the name of Paul, formerly an opposer of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? And I was reading the other day that, and the scriptures teach us that there will be people, Jesus said, that will think they're doing God's service by opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul certainly qualified to be one of those people who misunderstood what it means to serve God, never fully understood who Jesus was and the gospel until that day he was traveling to Damascus from Jerusalem in order to arrest Christians because he thought that they were deceived and that they were in a heretical situation and they were blasphemers and needed to be you know, imprisoned and, yes, ultimately die if they would not renounce their faith in Christ. You know what the interesting part was? He met the risen Jesus. He met the resurrected Jesus. Totally changed his life. So I want to take a look today at the first seven verses of the book of Romans and focus in on three important ingredients about the good news of Jesus Christ. And and the first one is the people who communicated it, the people who preached it. Who are these people? Who were the early followers of Jesus? And why was this so incredible? You know, I was talking at the beginning of the service here. You know, we have a lot of problems in our nation. Anybody figure this out yet? We're having a lot of challenges in our country. And things are not getting better. They're getting more challenging. How many can say that's probably true? And so often we're looking to political solutions. Folks, can I tell you, you know, Caesar and Herod did not change the ancient world. The political answer wasn't the ultimate answer. You know who the people were that changed the ancient world? Their names went by Peter, James, and John. They were the ordinary fishermen from Galilee who were infused by the life of Christ, who whose lives were transformed, and who took this life-giving message wherever they went, and other lives were transformed as a result. You know, and within about 25 years, 25 million Christians came on the scene. It was really powerful. Here we find that Paul begins in verse 1. It starts out saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Here we see that it begins with Paul the servant. Now, 
It's interesting, this Greek word, and I, and I brought it out here not too long ago. I think I even mentioned it on Friday night. This word is actually the Greek word doulos, and it would be better translated actually serve slave. And we need to understand something. In the ancient world, in the Roman ancient world, the majority of people were slaves. And, you know, they, did, they didn't have any freedom. They had to do what their masters basically said. So they served, and and most of them were in unwilling and permanent bondage, from which often there was no release but death. Isn't that amazing? Now, the Mosaic law provided for an indentured servant to voluntarily become a permanent bond slave of a man or master he loved and respected. That's found in the Old Testament. And I was just reading it, you know, here in Exodus chapter 21. If a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently." So this is the idea that Paul is now bringing across as he's writing this letter. He's saying, I am an indentured servant of Jesus Christ. I am a love slave. I am serving him now permanently because of my love for him. Now the apostle had given himself wholeheartedly in love because he had been saved from sin and death. Not only did Paul describe himself as being a slave, but also an apostle, which means someone sent with authority. This is very important. Apostolos is the Greek word. And scholar Douglas Moose says, as is Paul's custom then, he specifies at the very beginning of his letter that he writes not as a private individual, nor nor even as a gifted teacher, but as a called apostle whose words bear the authority of God himself. So what he's basically saying is, this isn't just what I think. This, what I'm writing to you, has an authority that comes from God and must be listened to as if God himself were speaking to you. That's a pretty powerful thought, isn't it? This is not option. You know, a lot of times we read the Bible go, I like this, I don't like that, you know? How many, have ever, how many know there's some parts of the Bible we don't like? You know, I've read it for a long time now. I'd like to avoid those parts, but they're there. And there's an authority there, and I need to understand that. And not only is Paul a love slave and a man under God's authority to speak on God's behalf, but he's been set apart for the gospel of God, the good news. He's God's witness. He's experienced this truth. That's why he was so passionate. You know, if you... When Paul was preaching, he was fearless. I mean, read the book of Acts. There's nothing that stopped this guy. I mean, they were threatening him, stoning him, imprisoning him. Isn't that true? And they finally killed him. But the whole time he was just impassionate to share this amazing message because he had experienced this for his own life and knew the power of it. And he was compelled to communicate it. He says, I don't do this willingly. I'm constrained to do this. There was a spiritual constraint within him. Why were the early followers of Jesus told to wait in Jerusalem? Isn't that interesting? You know, they're, they're told to wait until the Spirit of God would come upon him. And it says here in the book of Acts, when God's Spirit comes, you're going to receive power. But it's not a power to, you know, to... 
you know, sometimes we think, well, I just want to be powerful. No, no, it's not that way. There's a power that God wants to bring into our lives so that you and I will be his witnesses, that you and I will literally communicate both by our lives and by our words this good news about Jesus Christ. And then he talks about how this message would spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that we're commissioned by God. The church is commissioned by God to go out and make disciples. But you and I cannot do this in our own strength. We need the empowerment of God's Spirit. And many times the reason why we don't share our faith and why we're intimidated and why we feel silence is because the Spirit of God needs to come into our lives in a greater measure. We really need God's boldness, don't we? We really need God's wisdom in our lives. We really need this sense of God's Spirit activated in that work within us. And then it compels you. You know, you find yourself saying things you normally wouldn't say. You just, you're doing it. You know, you're talking to people about it. You're unashamed of the gospel because you recognize how powerful this message really is and how it affects people and changes their lives. Paul moves on to share some other something about other servants of the gospel, the prophets. Isn't it interesting? He says here, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So in other words, this isn't just coming out of the blue. This was a long-term plan by God from the very beginning. And then he sent messengers throughout time to foretell of this incredible coming of the Messiah, that this good news would finally come. And you know, I've been studying the Old Testament for a long time now, and actually I'm working on a, a paper right now, and I'm, I'm studying from the Old Testament. I'm writing from the Old Testament, but there's something that really impacted me recently. If all you had was the Old Testament, it would feel like an incomplete book. There's, it's leading towards something. And until you put the New Testament together with it, it just seems like it's not completed. There's something missing. There's something awaiting to happen. But once you realize that when the Messiah came, when Jesus came, he's a fulfillment of all that the prophets had to say regarding the coming of Jesus Christ. So... Not only are we confronted with apostolic authority, but also the ancient writers of the Hebrew prophets, all pointing to the same thing, this wonderful good news. These people were living with hope and anticipation. When you read the Gospels, what you're seeing is people who are looking for that moment when the fulfillment of the prophets would finally arrive, and now it's beginning to happen. So you say, well then, Pastor, how does all of this apply to us? What difference does this make in our lives? Well, first of all, we need to know that the Scriptures are authoritative in our lives. Here's here's a clear directive for us how to live. How many appreciate that we're not going to vacillate all over the map and let culture determine how we should behave? How many know it's very confusing? One day people say this is the deal, and later on they say this is the deal. Things are changing all the time. How many notice that? If I, if I brought materials in the 1950s from the psychology books, you'd be shocked at what psychologists said in 1950 co- compared to what they're saying in 2018. You'd be stunned. They're saying the exact opposite. How many think that's interesting? So if you're just listening to what smart people are saying, you could be all over the map. What I'm saying to you, there's got to be a grounding, a place where you and I can stand on. Secondly, what rights uh, do I have? Paul describes himself as a slave. What rights does a slave have? What's the right answer? Zero. But here's a culture today we're living in that's all we demand is our rights. Isn't that true? We're we're always looking out for what's best for us. 
Paul said, no, I'm looking out for what's best for Christ. I'm looking what's best for God's kingdom. It's a whole different orientation to life. It's a totally different focus. Thirdly, we're set apart and we're sent with this gospel. God calls us out of darkness, not so that we can just say, oh, it's so wonderful to be God's kid. And then I just pick my feet up and sit back and enjoy God's blessings. I think there's a lot of Christians, they think that's what it's all about. That's the, that's the limit of their gospel preaching. Listen, it's more than that, folks. God saves us because he has a purpose for us. God wants to send us. God has created for us to do things that we need to reach towards. There's things that he's prepared in advance for us to do, good works. And God wants us to discover his game plan for our lives. And I tell you, it's, it's far more exciting than our plan. You may not know that, but it is the truth. And once you get on that game plan, you go, wow, this is amazing. Who would have thought? But let me move on to the second ingredient of the gospel. It's the person that provided it. First of all, Paul describes the person of the gospel as being an answer to the promise. Look at verse 3. He says here, the prophets and the Holy Scriptures are speaking regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. So now he's telling you the Messiah had to come through the lineage of King David. Okay? And Paul immediately lets us know this person is unusual. Both Matthew and Luke's Gospels bring out this lineage that Jesus was a descendant of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph had to go there because he was of the house and lineage of David. How far had that royal line descended after their exile? It was almost in obscurity by the time Jesus comes along. And that's why people didn't recognize him as, you know, a son of David because... You know, David's line was so obscured. And so they all thought he was from Nazareth. That's why they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They just did not connect the fact that, you know, Jesus, to be the Messiah, should have come out of the house of David. And you know what? He did. They just didn't realize that. And to make this clear, God brought about, you know, that birth in a rather interesting way. Jesus' birth by, you know, taxing the world. That was bad. But the tax brought Joseph to Bethlehem. It's important that we understand that God became flesh and lived among us as a human being. He came down to our level, one songwriter writes. Listen to what Philippians says. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What a, what a tremendous challenging thing that Jesus was willing to obey God even to the point of dying. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so there's more to Jesus than we realize. Well, that's, that's the earthly side, but let's go to verse 4. He's not only fully human, he's also fully God. Verse 4, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. How? By his resurrection from the dead. See, I I would get to this theme of the resurrection yet. It's found in verse 4. This is the message. 
That Jesus Christ, because he rose from the dead, that was the ultimate sign that he was the Messiah. Jesus said, I'm only going to give you one sign, the same sign that Jonah, who, who was in the belly of the whale for three days, right? Jesus said, I will be in the belly of the earth and I will rise again. And they understood it because they posted guards and sealed the tomb because they were freaked out. They thought, if he does what he says he does, that's a scary thing. And why should it have been a scary thing? It should have been an awesome thing. And Jesus literally rose again from the dead bodily. His body. And that's good news for us to know that we have a hope beyond this life. We will conquer death because Jesus conquered death. That's the true hope. And all the other stuff that I hear all the time, well, people are going to a better place. How can you believe that? Unless you have the hope of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. See, people don't even know they're actually affirming the gospel message when they make those kinds of statements. Because what else can you put your hope on? You have to have a basis for it. It's a pretty lofty thing to say to someone that someone is the Son of God. God in the flesh. How many know people can make that claim about themselves, but you know, there's a lot of people living in self-deception. Isn't that true? What is different about Jesus is that God the Holy Spirit revealed his identity when, in the, when he was raised from the dead. That's a pretty good thing, you know. It's pretty hard to do. This is the declaration that Jesus is more than just a man. He is the God, fully God, fully man. Some of you can say, well, I've heard all this before. Maybe we've even believed this intellectually, but it hasn't made any difference in our lives. What difference does it make in knowing a risen, resurrected Christ? Believing is one thing. Acting on the knowledge is totally different. Notice the last expression in verse 4. It says there, And he through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. You know, Christ as Lord. So I raise the question, is he Lord? Well, he is, but is he Lord in my life? That's another question. Isn't that true? You know, how do I know he's Lord in my life? Is he in charge of my life? Does he determine my life? Does he determine what I do day in and day out? Or is he just a part of my life? You know, we can make the things of God just an appendage. An appendage is just an add-on. It's not the body, it's the add-on. And for a lot of Christians, I think, you know, we live our lives and Jesus is an appendage. He's an add-on. I come to church, yes, I believe in all this stuff, but it's it's not really defining who I am as a person. It's not the driving force of my life. Well, folks, if he is Lord, he's at the center. Otherwise, we're the Lord and he's just an appendage. How many are catching on what I'm saying? We have to make this decision in our lives. We have to sort of ask ourselves the tough question. Who is in charge of my life? Is it me or is it Jesus? You go, how do I know which it is, Pastor? I got a simple answer for you. It's real simple. If I do what Jesus says, he's Lord. It's real simple. Just that simple. You know, one of the great deceptions of our day is that we do not see idolatry. We just don't connect with idolatry. Because, you know, we think of idols as something I'm worshiping, something that's tangible, it's in front of me. And I, 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 go to, I travel a little bit, and I see people who are literally worshiping idols. I see that. 
physical, you know, there's a, there's a thing, and they'll tell you it just represents a power, and that's true. There's a power behind that idol. But let me just say this. There are idols in North America. They're just not as visible, or, you know, we don't think of them as idols. Let me name a few of the idols that we struggle with in our own culture. Fame, fortune, pleasure, materialism. Those are all idols when we put those things ahead of Christ. We can even create a synergism of religious worship where we blend the truth with the false and deluded Christianity and then it becomes something other than what it really is. We can have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. We can go through the outward motions of it, but there's no inward reality to it. You know, the northern tribes did that. You know the story of Elijah? Wasn't that an amazing story? He comes along and he says to the people. He says, listen, how long are you guys going to stand between two opinions? If God is God, if Yahweh is God, worship him. If, if Baal is God, worship him. What were they doing? They were worshiping both. How we know that that's what we tend to do. We tend to incorporate all kinds of ideas and then we make a religion, but it's not the biblical religion at all. We've diluted it. And then we go, you know, it just doesn't work the way the Bible says it works. Let me tell you something. When you get the full meal deal, when you get the real thing, when Christ is at the center, you're going to see the power of the Spirit of God at work in your life. It does work. You know, we just have to put Christ in the right place in our lives. We can make God fit into our lifestyle, or we can surrender ourselves to Christ. We can say like the Apostle Paul. You know what he said? He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. Wow. We have to ask the question, does Christ rule in my heart? Is he number one? Does my speech, my aspirations, my desires, my energies reflect that Christ is Lord? And if not, then I need to repent, which means I change my mind and I turn to him and I understand who he is and I say, Jesus, you are now Lord. Let me move to the final ingredient about the good news of Jesus Christ is the purpose and plan of it. Here Paul explains how the gospel changes our lives. So how does God go about doing it? Well, it starts by responding to his summons, his call in our lives. And I framed a number of questions that Paul answers in these last few verses. So first of all, how are we called? Look at verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. We are called through Christ. It's a result of God's grace that we receive all spiritual blessings. How many know that's true? God is the one that gives it to us as a gift. It's free. What's the greatest gift that a person can give? And I answer the question. Ourselves, right? You know, everything else is a lesser gift than the gift of ourselves. That's exactly what God has done. He has given us himself. As we come to him in our sinful condition, in our brokenness, what does he do? But he fills our lives with himself. That's peace. That's joy. That's wholeness. That's hope. That's grace. That's forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, God himself comes and fills us with his life. Oh, to have more of him in my life. It's real simple, God says. Give me more of you and you'll get more of me, right? Why don't we have more of Christ? Because we're holding back. We're afraid. Come on, let's be honest. We're afraid if I really give everything over to God, he may make me do something I don't want to do. What does that tell you? It's got, you're in there. 
And until that part of you says, I have to die to that and surrender myself to that and say, okay, Lord, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to trust you. And the moment you do that, there's that anxiety leaves. There's a freedom that comes. And God can begin to speak into our lives in a very powerful way. Then I notice we're called for his namesake. Though it originates out of God's love, the purpose or reason that God calls us to himself is to bring glory to his name. It's not about us. You know, isn't, isn't it so freeing when it stops being about me? You know, the biggest problem you and I have is, we think it's the devil, it's, it's this other person. I go, no, our biggest problem is ourselves. How many actually could say, that's probably true, Pastor? You, how many agree with me? My biggest problem is me. It's not another person. You know, I, I want to blame other people, but the culprit is the one I'm living in, you know? And, and the change is so difficult, isn't it? How many say, you know, it's easy to tell other people to change. That's my job. I'm a pastor. I'm always telling you to change. But you know, God spoke to me one time. He says, you know what? It's pretty hypocritical for you to tell others to change if you're not changing. How many know that? That's true, Right? So I have to say, okay, the, bit, the only person I, I can actually influence and affect is myself. I have to work on my, myself. And if I do that, it impacts people around me. You know, I have to die to myself. Well, that's a tough thing to do, right? Get out of the way. Not only do we receive the gift of grace by receiving Christ, but we also receive a task and a responsibility. And I keep saying this. The greater the privileges that you and I receive, the greater the responsibility that goes with it. And that's one of the biggest problems in our culture today. We all want the benefits of the good life, but we want none of the responsibilities. Isn't that true? You know, we get citizenship, there's a responsibility to be a voter and participate in governance. But most people, they just back away. Oh, I I can't do anything about it anyways. That's a cop-out. Come on. You can't say that. You know, you have to say, I have to be responsible. i got to do what I can do. You can't, may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. It's the same thing I say about the life of the church. You go, well, I don't like the way the church is going. I don't like something about this. Get involved. Be part of the solution. It's easy to be, you know, it's very easy to be critical of things. How many know that? Anybody can make critical remarks. Try being part of the solution. Wow, is that more difficult? Then you get a new appreciation. Oh, I thought this would be a lot easier. Yeah. And then you start finding out that we're part of the problem. You know? That's the hard part. Well, who then are we called to serve? Well, let me go back. How how does our faith life really work? Well, you know, God shows us what we're supposed to do. But where does he show it to us? In the scriptures. What does that now presuppose? I have to go to the scriptures to find out who God is and what he requires of me. So now I've got to discipline myself to actually read the Bible and actually study it. And a lot of times we have funny ideas about what the Bible is actually saying. But when you start studying it, you go, oh, this, there's more to this than I realized. And I can honestly say that. I've been studying it for over 40 years. And you know what? My understanding is deepening and broadening all the time. And so I'm just telling you there's a lot there, a lot more than we realize. Then who are we called to serve? Well, you can say it's obvious. I'm called to serve God. Of course we're called to serve God. But how do we serve God? By serving other people. You know, I'm I'm just busy serving God, Pastor. I don't have time for people. (laughs) Really? I go, then you're not really serving God. 
Because I've discovered that God calls me to serve people. How many know people are hard to serve? Has anybody figured this out yet? How many here are parents? How many go, it's a lot harder to be a parent than I realized? Anybody hands up? Of course it is. You're trying to help them and shape them and mold them. And that's the same way with serving people. And then people start telling you how they want you to serve them. You know, they, they, you know, you know, I, you know, the more you do for some people, sometimes they find the less grateful they really are. Anybody discovered that yet? You know, you're just pouring out your life and they're just demanding more and more. That just tells me they're just, they're just immature and undeveloped. Don't understand anything. For them, they're still locked into the little world and it's all about me. And there's a lot of people like that and it's really sad. How many want to grow up one day and get past it's all about me? I can tell you, the moment people move from it's not all about me anymore and it's about others, I just go, that was a huge maturity step. You know, you can tell. Just as listening to people, where their, where their heads are at, what they're concerned about. So who is it that God wants you to minister to? Well, it's obviously the people he's putting in your life. You know, our problems many times is that we don't think beyond the immediacy. It always begins with our family. You know, if I'm going to be an effective minister, I have to minister to my beautiful wife, Patty, and my beautiful children. Right? That's where it starts. If I'm not effective with them, I'm not going to be effective with others. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, it says you cannot be a leader in God's church if you cannot lead your own family. That's the number one requirement. How do you, how do you like that? What is God saying? You start there. You go, that's the hardest part, Pastor. I live with these people every day. Yeah, I know. That's why you've got to learn how to manage that, and you've got to learn to die to yourself, and you've got to learn to serve these people, right? Even when you get frustrated with them, you go, wow, really? You guys are doing that? You've got to still love them and forgive them? That's, that's a challenge. And then you move past your family, and you start moving out beyond that, and you start running into other people, and God brings people into your life. And then you start ministering to them. That's how you find out who you're called to. Let me close with this. The motivation of God's heart to those who are called. Look at verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, which just means you're now uh, set apart for God's purpose, right? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. One cannot help wondering why God would condescend to bring good news to a world that rejects and scorns him. Isn't that amazing? No one deserves to even hear this message, let alone to be saved by it. We don't deserve it. There's not one person that can honestly say, I deserve God's grace. Nope, not one of us. That tells you the nature of God. When people tell me, yeah, God's an angry God, I go, you don't know God. God's angry towards sin. And he loves people. Okay? He loves people. That's why he came. But God who is rich in love, God who is rich in mercy, he showed us grace. I'm so thankful for that. Now, if I'm going to be like him, I have to do things for people who don't deserve it. Come on now. You go, oh, I, I, they don't deserve it. That's right, they don't deserve it. And you and I have to love them. You and I have to serve them. Isn't that powerful? So, you know, we can talk about, oh, this is so exciting. Jesus, you know, rose from the dead. Yay, we're all clapping and shouting. And I'm going, that's good. We should clap and shout and scream and, you know, get all excited and passionate. 
But you know, if that's where Sunday ends, and that's all you've done today, and you don't understand that the reason why you're saved is so that you can go out and do the very same thing he did, then you haven't really got the full message. How is that? There's an application to this, folks, that you and I need to give our lives in the same way Jesus gave his. You and I need to serve other people who don't deserve it just the way he did to us. You and I need to forgive the people who don't deserve to be forgiven. You know, if they deserved it, that's not much of a forgiveness. Right? Come on now. You know, is that amazing? You know, Jesus is dying on the cross. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. You know, there's a story that uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse tells. It's, it's a fictitious story. Okay, this would never happen. You'll see why in a minute when I tell it to you. But it kind of brings across really the heart of God. He tells of a young Frenchman who was dearly loved, who, who dearly loved, was dearly loved by his mother. But in early manhood fell into grave immorality and I've been studying Proverbs. He was seduced by the strange woman, okay? (laughs) The foreign woman. You know, in other words, he slipped into immorality. And to prove his love to this woman, because she hated his mother, she, you know, baited him and said, you don't really love me. You got to get your mother out of your life, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he had resisted this really well until one night in a drunken stupor, he went out and he killed his mother. And she had told him, until I see her beating hard, I don't believe you've done it. So here he is. He's carrying his mother's bleeding heart in his hand to his vile companion. And he trips. And the heart speaks to him and says, My son, are you hurt? Now, we know that that's not a true story. But the point is there. And isn't that kind of the point of how God expressed love towards us? That you and I have done our own thing, gone our own way, and yet God's love just keeps coming towards us over and over and over again. Jesus is who he said he is. How do I know that? Because of the resurrection story. We're going to stand as we close the service this morning. And I shared this a little bit Friday night, but I want to just... You know, just say this to us. How do I know? How can I become a follower of Christ? I want to make it real simple and clear. This is what Romans 10.8 says. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your hearts. That is the word of faith we're proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You know, I started writing this thesis five months ago. I've been on it for five months. I've spent hundreds of hours. And I'm writing out of the book of Proverbs, and I'm writing on this idea of communication from the book of Proverbs. In In my beginning, I was thinking, you know, if I could just help people learn how to communicate, relationships would be better. But, you know, as I started out, you know how when you really study the Bible, it can really flip you on your head. I got totally turned around. I realized something. 
We don't necessarily have great communications problems. We just don't like each other. Let's be honest. And I started realizing the problem isn't with our mouth as much as it is with our hearts. Isn't that the truth? Our heart. But you see, sometimes we think of our heart, we have this kind of North American dichotomy. Our head and our heart are two different things. The Hebrew didn't think this way. The the biblical writers don't think this way. When the word heart shows up, that includes the essence of all that you are, your mind, your emotions, and your will. That's your heart. Okay? When they use the word heart in the Bible, it's the totality of your being. What he's saying here is if you really believe in your heart, your mouth is going to... The symptom of genuine belief will be what you say. And what you say, if your heart is in the right place, will be how you live. And so Christianity really is, if you really open your heart and give your heart to Christ, and then you start guarding your heart, your life is going to be transformed. This is a life-changing message. It will change you from the inside out. Too many changes in our culture today is from the outside in. You do this, you do that, you do this, and it's never lasting. How many say that's so true? I do a diet, I do this thing, I do that thing. It doesn't work. It has to come from within the person's heart. That's what has to be changed. And there's a beautiful proverb that says, give me your heart. God is saying that to us. And if we will come and say, Lord, here's my heart. It's broken, it's been ruptured, it's hardened. It's been deceived. It's an angry heart. It's a bitter heart. It's a hardened heart. But today I come to you and I'm going to give you my heart. I do believe that you came and died for me. I do believe you rose again from the dead. I believe that, but I'm giving you my heart. And I'm asking you to transform me from the inside out. I'll tell you, that's going to change your life. It's going to change how you talk. It's going to begin to change how you think. It's going to change how you act. And if you keep reading this book every day, I can guarantee you, you will not be the same person. You will, as a matter of fact, the moment you do this, you'll be a new creation. And from that point on, new desires, and there'll be a new hunger for the things above. And then all of a sudden, you start feeding that new nature, and you will flourish in your life. And with every head bowed this morning, I believe God's been speaking to hearts today. And you could even be a Christian today, you know. But God's Spirit is now speaking to you and saying, give me your heart. Give me your heart this morning. God's calling you to give your heart fully to Him and allow that life transformation to happen to you. Is that you today? Maybe you've been resisting God. Maybe you're still in the center and you know you've been afraid to fully turn it all over to him that's you today just raise your hand and say pastor i want us i want a new beginning today i want to just give my heart to christ today yeah just raise your hand high don't be ashamed i, I want to believe for transformation that's my prayer this morning i had the guys in my office we we're praying for this real life change in your life and people are responding this morning. that's awesome let me pray with you this morning so father i thank you today God, you have been speaking into our lives and you're challenging us to surrender our hearts to you. This is a life-changing message. 
But it's more than just a message. It's a life-changing way to live. And Father, as we give our hearts to you this morning, I pray that you will transform them, renew them, revitalize them, and that you will do such a profound work in our lives, Lord. It will change how we see life. It will change our direction in life. It will change how we communicate. It will change our behavior and our actions. And we thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.